he's uh, what's the world he the, he sees a world that's very crystal clear to him that sometimes the rest of us is very murky and oftentimes months year at a months years later something that he said that was just so obvious to him will suddenly like oh I get it I get what he's talking about and that's good because um, there was going to be a long um, uh, there's going to be an enormous uh, impetus created he's he's setting in motion this huge force that will run long after his life his life is over just as master just as Christ's life you know what Christ did didn't show that much when he did it but the momentum that he set in place vibrationally was enormous in master's life he accomplished a lot but that much there wasn't that much that showed he never successfully um, started a school in America or started any um, in, uh, world brotherhood colonies in America I mean many of the, many of the things that he said said were needed many most of the things he said were needing needed he didn't manifest but he he put the energy into the ether he, he launched the vibration so that attuned souls for centuries to come will get that vibration and Swami of course is one of those uh, you know one of the, the most significant ones apparently at this time at least in the sense that he has uh, just by his sheer um, creativity of music and books and so on has just taken so many of Master's ideas and articulated them in ways that are um, more easily graspable, graspable than the way Master himself said it or Master himself may have not said it at all except to a handful of people you know Master wrote many books but not that many and he wrote about scripture and so on like that what Swamiji has done in all cases is he's taken what it was that Master said and the principles that he said and then he has then figured out what it would mean applied to all these different situations so even though Master may have never articulated those exact words it's Master's teachings because if you're intuitively in tune with it and then turn your attention toward this subject this is what you come out with now Swami's intention also all the way through has always been to um, communicate from the principles of self-realization not from anything that you could call the theology of it I mean in other words it's not important that you be a disciple of master it's much more important that you base your life on the principles of self-realization and for that reason he can write books as J. Donald Walters that never directly call people's attention to Kriya Yoga and yet essentially are teaching people how to live as if they were doing Kriya and hopefully through that avenue will inspire them toward inner communion now this particular book Hope for a Better World um, it is true and it has to be said that almost every time Swami writes a book he announces that it's his most important book ever there is a certain like consistency to that which would cause people and have caused people to be a little less than to take him a little less seriously than he intends now that's not entirely true even as I say that it's been true more lately because some of the books he has written lately have been his most important books but this particular book hope for a better world he saw it as having the potential to really start a movement and it's the movement toward communities but as I work with this I see more and more what the movement really is and I'm not sure if I talked at the beginning of this class about Swami's intention when he came to America and wanting to speak at universities about this book 
but even if I did, I'm going to repeat it because it's relevant to what I want to say here. When he finished this book for the first time last winter and then was planning this uh, visit to the United States starting in, at the end of April, one of the things he really asked us to do was arrange for him to be able to speak on college campuses to young people, to students, not to professors, about the contents of this book. And that first um, lecture was set for Brown University, which he was able to, uh, somebody was able to arrange for him for various reasons. It was not easy to arrange it. And in fact, it was it turned out to be the only such lecture that was arranged, partly because the timing was such that the students were off campus because he was here in the summer. But also, it was hard to get people interested. It's a complicated world out there. But he was so intent on that talk at Brown University, and for various reasons, it was not well attended. Uh, in fact, it was very poorly attended. The weather was terrible. It was pouring rain. It was a very small group of people there, maybe 30 or 40 people including us, you know, including the, and just a handful of students, a few of whom walked out in the middle of the lecture. Swamiji said something very interesting afterwards. There was a lot of mea culpa about people who were supposed to publicize it and make it happen, you know, a lot of uh, true confessions about what, what was and was not done, and oh, that's all one part of it, and it, it has some relevance. But Swami put, sort of put it differently. He said, all afternoon I could feel Master telling me that it wasn't going to happen tonight in the way that I wanted it to happen. And afterwards, Swami spoke about what he had hoped for. Essentially what he had hoped was to start at Brown University and perhaps come through other universities in the country and awaken young people to a new concept. Start a, uh, his hope had been to start a young people's movement because... Um, People in their late teens and early 20s often have a clearer vision about the obvious than people do who can't afford to have such a clear vision because the implications of it would disrupt their lives too much or have just lost um, their idealism, have been worn down by life and just can't think in an idealistic manner anymore. Well, the revolution he was trying to start with this book was was toward communities to help launch Master's ideal of communities. But it was also, he was just encouraging people to rethink democracy, to, to rethink economy, to rethink leadership, to put it on a more real foundation, more consistent with the principles of self-realization, and to, to get our country, our whole country, really back on track. Now, that's not at all presumptuous when you consider you know, who he is, and I don't mean him personally, but he's acting as a disciple of a great avatar, sent when virtue has declined and vice has predominated, to, to uh, beat back the darkness and resurrect the light. And that's a, a job that has to be done on many levels. It's not a job that can just be done in the churches, because people's lives are so multidimensional, and the kind of teaching that Master brought is about everything. I mean, if you really think about it, when I when I used to have to play the role of admissions officer, admissions director for our elementary school here, and my job was to talk to parents, and I would have to try to explain to them sort of what is this education for life that we offer. And I couldn't always say this, but many of the parents I talked to had some 
inkling of uh, what, what we were about. And almost always I could bring them to enough of an understanding. And I would just say very simply, the principle of self-realization is that all of us are a manifestation of divinity. And that the, the, the purpose of our lives is to become in tune with that divinity and to have our lives guided by that divinity. And that everything else that we do in life, when it falls into proper line, is done in order to support that single objective. So we have a school system that is what you would naturally do if that was your premise. And everything else follows from that. And of course, literacy and, and education and familiarity with the classics and art and music. and I mean, all those things also follow because they all play a role. But you pick the whole thing up from this concept of the power of the individual and divinity, the, the inner power of the individual. Now, what Swami has done with this whole book, and he did it right at the very beginning when we were talking, that was the first chapter where the whole uh, essence of it was more clear to me. He traced everything back to this idea that everything begins with the individual. And now he's just been going through leadership and you know, the Marxist ideas, and now we're up to all these economic theories. He uses Adam Smith as the takeoff point to essentially talk about what is wealth, what is money, what is the place of, you know, what is materialism, how does materialism relate, how excessive materialism destroys democracy. You know, all of these different things, because what's happened is our, our society has begun to run without, without an awareness of the understanding that self-realization is the goal of life. And because, as he puts it, we're, it's, a, it's an uphill climb, it's always an uphill climb for the truth seeker, because, the, the, especially at a time like now, even in higher ages, you know, in, in the highest yugas, uh, Satya Yuga, I remember once having a, a conversation with Swamiji, and um, we were talking about reincarnation. And he was in... Uh, the mood that he's in a lot, in which he said, essentially, I hope never to come back. And then he will reluctantly admit that if he could do a little good for the world, he might be willing. And then we have a discussion about the fact that that's probably why he's here now. And he allows us how, yeah, that's probably why he's here now, that he wasn't compelled, but he came to help. And that he would probably consider it again, but maybe he needs a break. But uh, when we were having that discussion... I was saying something like, well, at least we could hold out for a higher yuga. And his answer was very dismissive. And he said, you know, even in higher yugas, this world is never home to the devotee. He said the only advantage of higher yugas, as he put it, and is the way I put it, and he agreed, was that the whole world is like Ananda. And people like us are in charge. So there's better taste in movies and music and things like that. <laughs> but nonetheless you're still dealing with the physical plane and you're still dealing with all the inherent disappointment of not being God-realized. So it isn't, it isn't really an answer. But at a time like this one, where we are in Kali Yuga, but at least we're moving, I mean, we're out of Kali Yuga, but we're still completely encumbered by Kali Yuga consciousness, the whole value system that we live in is just turned on its head. And many, and this is what he, many very, Ideas that, are, that the Kali Yuga influenced has caused us to value so much. You know, uh, people's, uh, I don't know how many of you have an attachment to communism, but it has been a popular uh, idea among many uh, uh, intellectually liberal people. Um, and 
ideas of self-interest or these economic ideas. Later we deal with Darwin and Freud and just and the concept of big government. Today he, he goes a lot at big government and government control and government interference, interference in people's lives. All of these ideas are sort of the, the encumbrances of Kali Yuga which are, are, are clouding our thinking. But even if they're not clouding our thinking, they're making it like a slippery uphill climb because all the, all the energy is rolling downhill. All the energy is rolling this way, and we're trying to go this way with it. We're salmon swimming upstream at the very least. And so we need to push that away. But more than that, we need to understand how to really help you know, this world move forward. And so he's trying to get us into those ideas because they're very important spiritual values. It's very important for us to develop clear minds it's very important for us to be able to objectify our values in all areas. And this comes back a little bit to the discussion we've been having in several situations about what is the self-realization point of view about the war in Iraq, which is that it follows from a whole lot of other perspectives, many of which are very, very radical. Master was a Republican. Master made a very strong point of being a Republican. Master was not at all in favor of uh, the government intervening. He did not have a high opinion of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He thought he'd sold the country down the river by bringing government into everybody's lives. Now, groups like ours are expected to be liberal politically. You know, we're supposed to just hold a whole lot of ideas that supposed to. I mean, that's what other people look at us and think that. But Master himself, and Swami tells the story of whomever he was talking to, that Master made a very strong point of saying repeatedly, I am a Republican. Master wasn't a Republican any more than he was Yogananda. But he was also saying, we have to think these things through. We have to exercise our brains and know. And so tonight, we just go at the very simple question of, of, of what is wealth? What is it that we're seeking? Because especially now, we're just so sucked into uh, lifestyles and pursuits and ways of living that are all just based on a lot of assumptions that are really not valid. And so he uses Adam Smith as really just a a sort of a takeoff point for him to really talk about um, getting back to the core understanding and, and setting a lot of these ideas on their head. Now, do we have any comments or thoughts before I go forward? Because I'm going to go back. Yes. Yeah. Stay in energy. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's when my life goes wrong because I'm not staying in energy being He's also he's describing the difference between Kali Yuga and Dwapara Yuga. Kali Yuga is that you try to get things into fixed form, and Dwapara Yuga is an understanding that energy is the basic reality. And uh, many years ago, when you, you're no doubt remembering this, when Ananda was trying to bring itself up from abject poverty, um, we were trying to find out you know, people were studying unity, churches, rules for prosperity, and uh, uh, ponds, whatever the woman's name is. You know, there's lots of different, what's her name? Catherine Ponder. Um, just lots of different prosperity schemes. And understanding the importance of attunement, it was natural to think, well, what did Master teach about this? So I just said, well, Swamiji, what is the self-realization secret of prosperity? He'd give me a one-word answer, Creativity. 
And ever since then, I've, I've just pondered that repeatedly and really appreciated on it on the deepest level that what creates, I mean, if you can almost just say it, what creates prosperity is creativity. Um, I'll, I'll put it in another way that was said in this book, in, in some phrase in this book. He commented about how, no, no, it wasn't in this book. It's in the one he's writing. God is for everyone. He talks about how... Uh, uh, he, w- he was talking about how we advance from tamasic energy to rajasic energy to sattvic energy. Tamasic being inert, rajasic being active, sattvic being calm energy. And he was condensing the forecast into the three gunas to just make it simpler, how it works. I've, I talk a lot about Vaishya Kshatriya, but he wasn't breaking it into four steps. But he was saying, when you're at the Vaishya level, let's say, or the Shudra level, the tamasic level, the world... You're at the mercy of the world. It happens to you. But gradually you begin to have this desire to influence the world around you. And so what you do, instead of being passive in your relationship to the world, you become creative in your relationship to the world. Isn't that the simplest way it is? Because instead of letting it happen, you want to become a cause, not an effect. And then as you progress more and more on the spiritual path, at first... You become creative in your own self-interest. And to use the caste system, that's the Vaishya level. You move from being a shudra, which is just tamasic and inert, to wanting to, to influence your environment. You want to cause your environment. So on some level, whether it's you know, you know, a massive level of creativity or not, nonetheless, you have to take what is and try to create something else rather than just letting it be done to you. But as we grow spiritually, we essentially want to be the instrument of all of our consciousness. We don't want our consciousness to be um, thrust upon us by our samskars, by our subconscious impressions, by the energy in the chakras. We want to be the creative force, the causative force. And even more profoundly, we want to unite our little consciousness with the, the force of the creator. And it's very interesting, and in fact, that's the whole theme of the, uh, the next course that I'm giving, which is the hit art as a hidden message. Because the essence of that book, after reading it, was the realization of the extraordinarily interwoven, interwoven relationship between being an artist and being a devotee. When, after reading that book, I realized you, you practically have to be a creative artist to be a devotee. And, and I realized it when he summarized it in the other one, because at a certain point, you have to take charge... You have to develop the capacity to command your environment. And whether that makes you a painter or a dancer or a singer is less important than that you become a creative artist with the life that you're living. Now, exactly what, what we just read here, wealth is well-directed energy, is saying that what gives us satisfaction, and this is where Swami earlier in the chapter begins, he, he says, what is wealth? It's always been de- defined as material objects and money, that that's what makes you wealthy. But what, what, what he says so simply is wealth is having what you value. That's all there is to it. And even if you have money, it's, it's always, I mean, money is just a, a, an inert object. Many people have a tremendous attachment to it. I will never forget, this is way off the subject, but I will never forget when I was about 19 or 20 years old, and we, um, uh, we were going on a great saga, and we were liquidating everything we had. And um, this was years ago, before I was married to David. And um, 
This was the beginning of the spiritual journey. And we, were, we bought this uh, big car. I mean, it was a Jeep. It was sort of like the equivalent of an SUV, but there were no SUVs at that time. And we bought it from this, really, this man was the incarnation of the Shudra striving to become a Vaisha by being a used car salesman. And through the, entire, through the entire experience, he never took off his dark glasses. He just, and he, I, he, I don't think he had a cigar, but it was sort of like he had a cigar. He was just totally, totally worldly. And it was just all about the deal that we were making. And um, much to his surprise, we paid for the automobile in cash because we were just um, liquidating everything and turning everything into liquid assets. We, just, we didn't know where we were going to go. So when it came time to pay for the car, which was really you know, in the hundreds or perhaps the thousands of dollars, but not very much, really. Uh, We just pulled out the roll of bills. When those bills came out, he took off his glasses (laughs) and for the first time in the entire experience became totally animated. He became lively. He began to joke. He began to interact with us. It was like he saw the money. It It was the most, like, amazing thing to us because it just, you know... It's not, it's not been my personal inclination toward money. It's never been personal for me, but I've never seen anybody who, who felt it as uh, like that man did. And, of course, I've never forgotten it. I can still just I can see him as I talk pulling off those sunglasses and becoming jovial. As we, it was like he was in the presence of a drug. You know, exactly. And so whatever it meant to him. Now, for, in his case, now that I know a lot more, he was probably doing a good thing because prior to that he was probably doing nothing. So at least something animated him, and it was the desire for money and whatever that meant to him. Importance, self-sufficiency, sensual indulgence, freedom, exciting the envy of others. Who knows what the whole row was. But somehow or another, that money was associated in his mind with something that he wanted. But of course, at the end of the day, the only thing any of us want is uh, inner peace. And satisfaction. It, it really, and I know nobody ever believes it who doesn't have money. And what, which, what, which was the famous woman movie star who said, I've been rich and I've been poor, and I'll tell you, honey, rich is better. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it was Mae West or someone like her. You know, that's just sort of, that is what we think. But in truth, now that our society is just sort of moving in this insane pursuit, we really have to ask ourselves, you know, what is this? What is this really about? And so he just asks the simplest question. And again, I was sort of seeing this book suddenly as he was seeing it to incite the understanding of young people starting out in their lives. What is it that you really want? And what are you really going to direct your energy toward? And the whole world around us tells us that this vast amount of wealth is required. But the whole process of the spiritual path is really honing ourselves down to what it is that really matters. I had the, I've had the extreme good fortune of being extremely poor in the context of community. So I wasn't insecure in my poverty, which of course would be a different kind of poverty. But nonetheless, I've had the extreme good fortune of having no money to spend on anything discretionary, which is a, a marvelous place to be. I mean, it's harder to have a little money You know, you can have limitless wealth or you can have no wealth. In The Imitation of Christ, the author speaks of the fact that it's easy to have what he calls an unbridled tongue. It's easy to just speak without discretion or discipline. It's easy to be in silence. 
but to be careful and appropriate, that's the difficult thing. And so in the same way, we imagine when we're have, we have a, a little bit of money, we have more money, we, have, we, have, we don't have just what we need, we have just a little more, but we don't have enough to just go buy everything we want. And so we're always sort of caught in having to make these decisions and thinking about it all the time. But if you're in a wonder, the wonderful position of not, having, not being able to buy anything except food and heat. You can't even, I couldn't even buy clothes, really. That had just sort of more or less come to me one way or another. Sometimes my parents would help me. Sometimes other people would help me. Sometimes it would happen. It just happened. It was, it's, it's a marvelous thing to really have to rely on God because you discover so much about yourself. But what you discover is a very simple principle, which he talks about in another part of this, which is the art of being happy is to never have, he puts it perfectly, to never have desires beyond your capabilities. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? And, and what's happened to us as a culture is that we're all being encouraged to have desires beyond our capabilities. And there are these huge industries which are, are just you know, devoting millions of dollars to encourage us to desire things we can never have and to be constantly discontent because we don't have them. You know, it's just very important to be extremely conscious of, of where our impulses are coming from because we don't have any freedom if we're just being uh, pushed around by all these things. You know, a strange thing happened after September 11th, which is suddenly people froze a lot in their willingness to be um, just casual and began to really think about what it is that is really important to us. And Master <laughs> told us <coughs> told us that one of the reasons hardships would come to this country is because we have become so confused. We've just, we, you know, we're so beyond wealthy. I was talking to someone recently who talked about the poorest person in this country is richer than most of the world. And most of the mo- people in the world would trade places in an instant with the poorest person in this country for a number of reasons. Not only because what we consider poor is so prosperous, I mean, people do starve in this country, but poor in most countries means starving. Poor in this country means that you drive an old car. You know, it's, it's just a great deal of difference. Um, but, and also people are anxious to come to this country because we have freedom. Just a very simple reality. We have freedom. We have the ability to determine for ourselves what our fate is going to be. And what... Swamiji is trying to get us to understand is that having what you want is wealth and the freedom to live your life according to your values is the most prized thing of all. And, to, and, and in our passion for material security, we have been gradually compromising our freedom. He, he talks about it just in a few paragraphs here. Master himself spoke with great frustration about the government regulations in the 40s he was talking about this you know and he did his best he had no respect for them when uh, Swami tells the story of building the Hollywood church in, in uh, uh, Southern California Master built that church during the war when new construction was forbidden so he got some hulk some shell of a building and moved it onto his property so that it wouldn't be new construction and then proceeded to build his church that way because he just wasn't interested in being uh, stopped by petty-minded bureaucrats. 
And hearing all the different regulations and things that would happen, Master, Master himself said, there ought to be a revolution. And then he said very quietly, and there will be. This is a very interesting comment. And then he said, you know, America is not, America is not the free country it used to be. But then he added, he said, but it's still better than any other country. Still, there's still more freedom than any other country. And think of what we're dealing with now. And Swamiji writes such an interesting analysis of that, without being too political here, but he talks about the problem with the free economy. And you know, just the summary of these thoughts is very important because we need to learn to think. The problem with the free economy is that those with power can oppress those who don't have power. And then it's very tempting for those who are oppressed to go to the government, to Big Brother, as he calls it, and ask for protection. And then there's this natural thought, oh, well, let's protect the little guy, because the original idea of democracy is that we protect the little guy. That's where it started. It was a reaction against oligarchy. It was a reaction against the elite few. And democracy, this whole reality, was created here. This is the Dwapara Yuga ideal. You know, not kings, not uh, hereditary aristocracy. There's so many things that we don't think about. When our friends first moved to Italy and they were trying to buy property over there to set up the Ananda Center there, they learned, which people in Europe would know, that our system, our economic system is designed to give access to property to as many people as possible. You make a small down payment and you pay for it for a really long time and then lots of little people can own their own homes. Well, they were in Italy where they're still working from the aristocratic point of view. And, you know, we talked about small down payments and things like that, and nobody ever heard of such things. It's, the whole system is designed to keep the land in the hands of the people who have the money. It's not designed to disperse the wealth, wealth among the little people, you know, to give everybody a chance to come up strong. As I was coming over here tonight, I kept the radio on after Bush was finished, and soon you have the democratic response. And the democratic response was from the governor of Washington, who, from what he said, must be Chinese, or at least partially Chinese, because he was saying, a hundred years ago, my father came from China. My grandfather or my great-grandfather came as an indentured servant, a virtual slave. And he said, and about a mile from where I'm standing is where he worked. He said, and now I'm the governor of the state. And it's just an amazing story. And And he said, truly, only in America... No matter how much prejudice, no matter how much effort was uh, put against them, America has always said that wealth is well-directed energy and that the value of our... We are valued for our creative ability to, to influence the world around us and we have created a country that is set up to enable that to happen. That's why America is the Dwapara Yuga country. Because everything about this country, even though it's being corrupted left and right, but the fundamentals are still under it. As uh, Rick was saying very well today, that America is not the people in charge of it. America is the people itself. And the, the basic impetus and the basic drive that we have to understand the importance of that creativity and the importance of maintaining that. But then Swami writes about how you know, we go, the little guy goes to the government and the government starts making regulations and he just, he says it in such an interesting way. He, he consolidates language and I, I realized he wrote this book for the leaders of this country or the future or the present leaders. You know, this is the kind of book that people who, who, ta- who, who have a, an uplifted understanding would read and really ponder 
and really think, you know, what is the purpose of leadership and how should I really lead? That's why he talks about the running of nations and the future of democracy. And so the government begins to try to regulate people's lives. And that's so much of an American reality. You have this two-sided thing going on because the idea of democracy is to protect little people. In many countries, they're not really out to protect little people, either because they don't care that much about little people, the average person, or because their attitudes are different. We had such an interesting experience when, uh, many years ago, when we went on, the India, on one of the India pilgrimages, often on the first day that we're in New Delhi, we've gone to visit a, a temple. Uh, we always called it the Baba Nagpul Temple. <coughs> Baba Nagpul was the um, founding uh, spiritual figure of that temple. He was a living person, but he, he died recently, relatively. And it was a, a huge temple out there. We would tend to come, the time of year that we would come would be the Durga Puja festival. Durga Puja is a, an 11-day huge festival, a time when in, in this particular temple, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people would come. And at the time that we were there then, the, they, they keep building this temple, but the, the huge sort of uh, open uh, amphitheater, covered amphitheater with open sides that they eventually built was not built, and so for the Durga Puja, they would erect a temporary building. And that temporary building was made out of uh, wood and thatching and uh, other things like that, but it was wired with electricity. And uh, the first year that we were, one of the years that we were there, uh, that whole structure caught fire. Now, I mean, this is a structure that's like five times as big as this room, I mean, the roof of it. It was a huge structure. And... Uh, so there was this uh, enormous conflagration that, by the grace of God, nobody was hurt except minor burns or medium burns. One person in our party was actually burned, as it turned out, more seriously than we knew at the time. Um, but afterwards, there was such a sense among our pilgrims. And I mean, we had a lot of anxiety because we actually had to run for our lives. Literally, we had to run for our lives. You were there. As it happened, uh, we did run for our lives and made it. But if we hadn't run for our lives, we might have been killed. And, uh, but there was such a sense that somebody ought to do something. You know, just this instinctive desire that in America this never would have happened because there would have been rules about this and rules about that and rules about this and rules about that. And, but you walk all through India and nobody can afford to do anything about it is the primary reason. But also there's this other sense that there isn't the necessity that you set up this big system that protects everybody from their own realities. And we, we have this mindset, and he's talking about it in terms of democracy and so on, but we just have this mindset that somehow the world owes us a kind of security. And we demand it of the government. And the way Swami describes it is that we gradually sell our personal integrity for the sake of that security. Now, he's talking about governments but you know, it's very also true for the devotee. And, and, and in that whole section, the temptation, and I'll talk about that, what I mean by that, the, the temptation to seek material security instead of living faithful to our principles. And one of the other things that Swami talks about is true wealth. His true wealth is the, is the ability to live faithfully to your principles. Because then what you have is a clear conscience. And a clear conscience is worth everything. 
Swamiji sometimes is so dismissive of popular psychology. He says everybody talks about self-acceptance. He said the only way to have real self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience. Right? Because as long as your conscience is clouded, you will never be at peace with yourself. And, I mean, you can have a clear conscience and not be perfect. You can know that you tried and you did your best. But that's a clear conscience, too. I tried. I did my best. I was faithful to my principles in that I gave it my best effort. You don't have to be self-realized before you can accept yourself. But there's no shortcut around that. And even a lot of psychology, and we'll talk about that when we get there later, is trying to shortcut it some way. Just trying to say you can compromise your values and it's still okay. We'll make it okay. Uh, there was a, uh, you know, sometimes people will try to be spiritual and they just tell you, do whatever you want, but just call it spiritual. <laughs> and, but it's not true because we're made in a certain way. There are certain realities that will work for us or won't work for us. And Swami's talking about the demise of democracy, talking about how we ask government to help us, government gets bigger and bigger and has more and more power. And then he says it so simply, then people in government feel more in tune with big business than they feel in tune with the little person. Because the people who, who seek to be involved with that are people who like power and like bigness. And people who don't like bigness don't even get involved in it. They, they want to stay on a human scale. They want to stay where values are more clear and things aren't so compromised. And then you end up with this whole uh, picture, which is really just exactly what we have now. And then he talks about how politicians just start making promises and they start spending our money to do it. And pretty soon we've lost all our principles, our personal integrity. And I was starting to say... As devotees, too, it's very tricky business. We have these ideas that we're really trying to live by, that, that God is our first value, and that our security comes from the divine. And we hit it even within Ananda. It's not like the people of Ananda are already self-realized. This is merely an environment in which we're trying to work together, just as he describes at the end of this. Isn't it better to work with people who are helping you to aspire? And that's exactly what we're working with, but... Uh, you know, in the last few years, as uh, the, the population of Ananda begins to age, during the years when I spoke, when, when we all had nothing, um, most of us were unmarried. Uh, the majority were unmarried. Only a few people had children. The, I read something in a, a newsletter, you know, the median age was 25. And people were just young and very, at that time, extremely free. I mean, nowadays... Even young people have such strange consciousness from my point of view. I remember talking to a young man of last week, I think I was talking about the woman who was, who was afraid that if she got on this path she would lose her middle class dream. I was afraid if I didn't I would be forced into it. But uh, uh, she, she was, uh, this, this young man that uh, came here for a while fl- flirted with the spiritual path and now has gone on probably to something else unless God willing he shows up again. But uh, He was about 22 or 23 years old, and he was right in the big uh, tech situation, you know. He was earning more than his father had ever earned kind of position, and he was, was, but he was very unhappy. And so he was talking to me about, you know, what we were doing and what, what made it work and just trying to help find his way a little bit. And I suggested to him, because he had a lot of money in the bank, that he should just maybe go up to Ananda village for a few months 
because I could see unless he was extricated from his environment, it would be very hard for him to get clarity. And uh, that would mean he would have to leave his job and various things like that. He actually um, was concerned that if he interrupted his career path or his work, that it would have a deleterious effect on his retirement fund. Yeah. I mean, he was perhaps an extreme example. I said, you haven't yet had a life. You know, we're making decisions about retirement and you haven't had a life. Generally speaking, it's better to have a life before you have a retirement. But it was, it was just like everyone had told him, you do this, you do that, and that's how you run your story. Now, he was not very committed to this path, but as Ananda has aged and the realities of aging and all those things have come to us, there have been all these different movements within Ananda. What about our retirement? And there are different opinions about this, so I'm not going to really say one way or another what people should or shouldn't do. But there was a meeting about retirement, and Nitai, who was one of the virtually a founding member of Ananda and one of the people who really helped develop our school system, was hearing all this about life members of the monastic order who have worked in Ananda jobs and aren't, don't have money in their families, so can't look forward to personal inheritance and you know, what's going to happen? And it was like, how are we going to provide? What are we going to do? Nitai finally stood up, and it's so movingly and just so truly. And Nitai has been impoverished his whole life. He doesn't necessarily, he hasn't had the kind of karma where he tends to end up with lots of money. He's done everything, you know, he lives at a much more uh, gloriously interesting level than most rich people do. But he, he's, he's not had much in the bank at all. So it was especially meaningful coming from him. And he said, my commitment has never been, it's not been a, a deal between me and Ananda. He said, my deal has always been with God. And he said, if at the end of a lifetime of service and dedicating myself to the spiritual path, he said, I die impoverished under a bridge. That's, the, that's just the way it goes. Nobody owes me anything. You know, I'm not going to say at the end, you should take care of me. Nobody should take care of me. He said, I've done this of my own volition, uh, out of dedication to serving God and Guru, and that's my fate is in his hands. And it is. That's how he lives. But how many times, when we're up against that choice, do we essentially choose security over personal integrity? You see? And we make it as devotees as very small decisions. We, we believe, in, but we also want to be practical. Now, I'm not telling anybody what to do. You know, I'm not describing what I do even or anything like that, but I'm just talking about the principles that Swami's talking about internationally, but yet are just the essence of how our lives are going to work. You know, what do we really believe in and what is our wealth? If we end up with a comfortable retirement, but we've sacrificed the wealth of what we really wanted, which was to live by what we truly believed and to give our lives to God, will that be a success or failure? Will we be rich or poor? It's a a very interesting question, isn't it? And that's really the question that's raised here. And what Swami's trying to say is, break this hypnosis, which everyone has. You know, be the one in a a thousand, and the one out of a thousand after that. Who, who really just lives faithful. And that's what, that's what wealth is, is the ability to do that. 
is the ability to decide this is what's important to me and to do it. Energy rightly directed. And how do we acquire that? Do we acquire that? How do we acquire that? You know? What are we devoting our energy to day after day? Acquiring true wealth or accumulating money? It's, it's, it's a fascinating and very, very important, absolutely fundamental to our future and really to the future of the whole world. Well, let's take a short break. Yes, Steve. Asha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a thought related to the comment you made earlier about um, Swami's proposal for a tour initially about this book and the fact that it never really came about. Right. I've been getting a sense that it's going to be maybe another generation mm-hmm. until that's, these ideas are, are embraced more fully. Right. I think that the generation that's in the universities now is not quite ready for it. And I, I think maybe karmically there's just some, some very strong forces moving through this group and they need to experience perhaps more of this um, experience of the larger government and, and those forces in order to get a, d- a deeper understanding. It's possible. I do think that we've certainly seen more spiritual interest in this generation than we saw in other groups. But at the same time, there have been many discussions through the, in, in more recent years at Ananda Villages. We all get older and there got to be this huge gap that people, we, we thought that it, this was such an exciting movement that people would be real interested in it. Um, several things happened that um, we failed to perceive that when young people came, they saw a lot of old people. <laughs> but they, they saw their parents, and that wasn't like real exciting to them. Um, the second thing that happens is when something is 30 years old, um, when you first arrive, you may feel that it's already been done, and it doesn't seem that interesting to you. Whereas when you come and it hasn't been done, and you're just starting out in your own life, you feel like you have more influence. Also, a very dangerous habit can set in when you yourself have been doing something for a while that you have a tendency to hold on to your position and, uh, and, other, and there's just not space and you, you get into bad habits. Um, so all of those things have been very relevant. In fact, we had a conversation, a group of us, Sean called it for people who were um, less than 35, called it for a group of people who, know, who were still 35 or less or maybe just 30 or less and I, I was there, not because I am, but because Swami was there and he, I was, he took me with him. Sean wasn't going to let me come. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I crashed the party because Swami decided it, the party was at his house and I was staying at his house and when Swami decided to go to the meeting he just assumed that I could go. So I just got to walk in under his coattails. But um, Let's see now. The discussion that we were having was when Ananda started years ago as one rural community, it was clearly a revolution. And people don't necessarily see that it's a revolution anymore. And so it's, but it's, it's as much a revolution as it ever was. And for the most part, young people are idealistic and they want a revolution. They want to make the world better. Um, but also, there's another simple fact, which karma is karma. People who are going to be, I mean, this is Master's Ray, this is being a disciple of Yogananda, this is serving this particular expression of God, and if it's your destiny to do it, you'll find it. You'll, you'll crack through whatever it is, the superficial, and you'll sense the reality of it. Um, but nonetheless, 
Swami is fond of quoting Buckminster Fuller's answer when he was being interviewed and someone said, you know, how does it feel to have been propounding these ideas your whole life and nobody has listened to you? He said, oh, it doesn't bother me at all. He says, it always takes at least a generation for a new, a new reality. And Swami explains it perfectly. The old folk have to die. And then a new group grows up with it. I mean, look at the technology. Just the way uh, uh, we all turn to people who are in their 20s to solve a lot of us, to solve our computer problems. I mean, not all of us, but uh, a lot of people who have children just rely on their children. And we sort of say, how do they know that? And they say, well, it's, it's in their cells. It's in their DNA. They just know how to run these machines. And it really is. Like, they're from Atlantis. And they created it thousands of years ago. And so they just look at it, and it makes perfect sense to them. Whereas some of the rest of us just don't have that same karma. It's just a different thing. We're using it, and we're fine with it, but we don't instinctively understand it like we understand other things. But there's a lot of souls that are... You have to say, if this work is going to carry on, there are souls born who are going to do it. Just as simple as that. That doesn't absolve us of responsibility to do our part to make that possible, to get out of the way, to be creative, to, you know, to do all the things that you need to do. But then you'll, we'll just see. And if, uh, if this generation is going to actually face the world that Master keeps promising is going to come, which is a disintegrating reality in which it's not an option anymore. You just don't sort of have this comfortable little materialistic life. It's, it's light and darkness and you have to decide. And all the security is just whipped out from under you. Then that's a whole different story. We haven't yet seen really what this world is about. And I think a lot of young people, people who are young now, are really being born for something completely other that they haven't seen yet, which is uh, much better, really, but less comfortable. And we were talking the other night when we were talking uh, about possible war in Iraq, and um, I was uh, talking about two, two different incidences that I recall reading about were of men from the Second World War. No, one was from Vietnam where, you know, Vietnam is, for most people, considered to be... There's very little romantic glamour about Vietnam. There's a great deal of romanticizing of the power of World War II, but there's very little about Vietnam. So this was a Vietnam veteran who had been through some pretty horrific things there. But, he'll, but still said uh, he would happily go back because uh, of the love he experienced. Because he said... In that context, there was nothing superficial. And that was just worth everything. To come back to this life, the worst about this life is that it's so superficial. And people just can't make contact with each other. But there, when he was in Vietnam, everything was absolutely real. Because your life was on the line every day. And that was just much more gratifying. Even though his buddies died and the conditions were terrible. But she said, they saved lots of things. What is wealth? as having what you really want. What do you really want? What we want is expansion of consciousness. What we want is, is happiness and bliss. But we have to, it takes courage. It takes determination. It takes tremendous energy. All kinds of things. And that's why we meditate. And, it, and we have to also overcome our subconsciousness. That's why we do Kriya. I've been thinking a lot lately just how much of it is about being um, trapped in your own samskars. Your samskars are the impressions from your past lives. That's what a samskar is. 
and they're stored in your chakras. It's the vortices of energy in your chakras. Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of of chitta, of feeling, of likes and dislikes. It's just overcoming all those whirlpools of karma and being able to really be what we really are. So that's why Kriya is such a revolution. Because Kriya, the, the, the technique of Kriya, and of course Kriya initiation technique is the final end of that, but Hongsa, Om, energization, all, all the meditation that we learn, the chanting, the prayer, everything is all the, the dimensions of Kriya. Like Kriya is like the, the, the pinnacle, but this is all the mountain that you go up in order to get to the Kriya. But the essence of Kriya is that by the power of concentration, devotion, and the grace of the Guru, you dissolve the karma in your chakras. And when you dissolve the karma in your chakras, you become free. And, and what you become free, you become free to live according to your principles without making the decision to live according to your principles and then suddenly finding yourself over here. Not quite sure how you got there. I, I realized watching myself and other people over the years, I'm, I'm just so funny because I'm, a, I'm myself, I'm a procrastinator. And I watch myself head for my computer and suddenly be downstairs at the refrigerator. Not quite sure at what point I came downstairs. You know? And I remember a writer commenting about his tendency to procrastinate. And he, she it was a woman. She said, thank God for writing deadlines. Otherwise, I'd never get my housework done. <laughs> it's just because you know, something other takes us in another direction. Somebody told me a chilling story about subconsciousness from the point of view of alcoholism. This man was, the man's father had been an alcoholic for a long time and was asserting that he had stopped drinking and had reformed, but he had been drinking for a long time, many years prior to that. And the son, the story was told by the son that he was sitting with his father at the table. They were talking about the fact that his father was not drinking anymore. At some point in the meal, his father got up, and he, but he still had alcohol in the house. God knows why. He stood up. He walked over to the sideboard. He poured himself a drink. He drank it. He came back and sat down at the table. And then the son said, I thought you weren't drinking anymore. Father said, I'm not. That his, just, his subconscious had just taken over, and he had just done that, and he wasn't even consciously aware of having done that because it was just such a habit with him to do that. Now, I'm, I've certainly blanked out at times, many times. You know, you just, you don't go unconscious, but you don't remember minutes of your life. You just and find yourself doing something. I mean, it's sort of like you become forgetful. Why am I standing here? What did I come downstairs for? You know, what was I going to say? You just go blank. And that's all, I mean, but also what I was starting to say is I've watched people over the years, and I've seen it now in myself, where you're absolutely clear in your intention. You really plan to do this, whatever it might be, whether it's to meditate or to follow an exercise program or a diet. Or I mean, you just couldn't be more sincere about it. And you start out determined to do it. And, but you, you're, you're going forward, and you think you're going forward, but you actually run into one of these karmic channels. And you, you think you're walking in a straight line, but you're just in a drift. You know how like if the, the automatic pilot's a little off and you start drifting or the car is a little maladjusted and you just drift over like this? Because you're, 
the magnetism of your karma, you're going forward and at the same time you're being pulled off. And, and so you end up not at all where you thought you were going to go. You never decided to change course, but your, your samskars changed your course. Your, your karma changed your course. But when you do kriya, just through meditation, not through a whole year of, of ideal living, as the Master describes in the autobiography of a yogi, you know, each kriya is like an entire year of ideal living. But you do kriya, and you run energy through each of the chakras, and you just burn up that karma. And then less, um, you're more capable of going where you're trying to go. You see what, it's just such a huge uh, revolution. That's why Master just talks about it with so much power, that you know, he came to teach Kriya Yoga. And that's why there's just so much energy around Kriya Yoga, because everything else becomes possible. And of course, any meditation done with the constant, done in the manner in which we teach, which is all you know the other aspects of Kriya Yoga, which is raising the energy to the spiritual eye, and through the power of your own effort and grace of God and grace of Guru, and the mechanics, the metaphysical mechanics, you move energy from the lower chakras to the spiritual eye, and you burn it up. You burn up the energy and you shift it, and then you have more capacity um, to believe in God because less of you is whispering to you, what about this, what about that, what about this, what about that. So it's marvelously the way it all works together. And again, once you sort of get, you you pick it up from any string you like and it all starts weaving together. That's why these books that Swamiji have written are, are just beyond brilliant. But it will take people so long to understand them. And powerful individuals will read them and begin to talk about them and begin to act from them. And it'll just, you know, slowly by slowly, 2,000 years for Christianity, a few hundred years for Christianity to get started. It's not really very long when you're looking at what you're looking at. It's very important. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments or thoughts? Yes, Pam. Just a comment about uh, talking about generations. Uh, Today, <laughs> I was in the school to work with kids, and I came in while they were having their little uh, morning whatever, circle, and they were singing chants, and mm-hmm. they were doing some of the energization exercises, and then I walked in to work in the garden, I was getting things ready, and Gary had his whole middle school there, and there wasn't a word, it was so silent there, mm-hmm. and they were all doing their energization, mm-hmm. and then they all walked together, it wasn't a word. Middle school age. <laughs> they all walked silently somewhere. Well, they were also under the uh, command of Gary, it has to be said, but nonetheless, no, I'm teasing. Yeah, but it, but it, it is. Impressive. Yeah. It's a very impressive. <laughs> you know, um, one of my friends from many years ago, when I was just getting onto the spiritual path, I was friends with two men who were both uh, world class athletes. And uh, one got onto this path and learned energization, and then shortly after ended his athletic career because he wasn't interested anymore. But he, when he learned energization, he says, this is what I had been looking for all the time. I'd been looking for some specific way, you know, to just get that advantage, because it was sort of like, um, at that level of athletic, athleticism, it's so much about your focus, just how to just generate that much more energy. And so, so many more things are possible as people are going to learn this. The whole world will become different. But this, this, 
little generation there is in it, uh, just going on a field trip with them. We were picking some chickens at this, we went on this farm field trip. And, um, Somebody picked one up so we could see it, and then of course it was kind of ruffled, <laughs> all the kids. And it went down, and instantly one of the kids said, we have to own the chickens, and they all owned the chickens to calm them, to, to calm them down. And you know, it was just like that. It's part of them. Yeah, it's part of them. Uh, you wonder why we're not just overwhelmed with students. You, don't, you wonder why people aren't rushing in right and left to teach in our school and to donate a school building to us. And you know, it's just like, how could you not want this? But, now, I mean, that's a really typical example. I mean, I literally, this was my own true experience. Uh, a person who shall remain nameless, who did in fact enroll their child in our school because of an absolute intuitive understanding. Um, the, the family's not with us anymore, but because an absolute intuitive understanding that was right where the child belonged, wept in my arms for fear that this decision to put their four-year-old into our school mean that the child would have a hard time getting into Harvard. You know, just the fear that if it wasn't... And I remember another kind of... This, I, I, I burned out on this so badly that I was just really had to retire. This, uh, this other parent that I was talking to who never did bring their chil- children in understood that, you know, kindergarten, first grade, maybe all through second grade, it was really nice to have a happy, good atmosphere for them, but was very concerned... I mean, this isn't how they put it. If they weren't absolutely miserable by first, fifth grade, they probably weren't learning anything. I asked, how much do you learn when you're scared to death? But, you know, it's just like... But you see, these are the fundamental thought forms, and, and one, of the, one of the most extraordinary thought forms going on in our, in our world right now is education for children, which is... I mean, the world is really sick, but it is sick unto death in terms of education. They're just, and what's happening is the children are just enraged because they're just squeezing everything meaningful out of education and just hammering in facts. And they're, they're taking out values, they're taking out creativity, they're taking out art, they're taking out humanity, they're taking out everything, just testing them on the facts in the name of, oh, I don't even want to go into it, I get so upset. <laughs> but there's an answer. Education for life. It's falling apart, too. It's marvelously falling apart. I mean, really big time falling apart. In fact, it was one of my notes in here was big time falling apart. Oh, you know what I wanted to talk about? Because I, I didn't say this last week. This is like a little tangential, but it's really important. He talks a lot about here about how communism is such a deadening system. And he talks about Marx, Marx's, Marx idealizing what until that time the, the, the common laboring man had never been idealized. Swami speaks very strongly about it. He said, dullards do not have any sense of responsibility for the welfare of others, and that's what makes them dullards. You can't <laughs> elevate such a person and say that it's the leader of a society because the leader of a society has to have a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. And he also talks about how if you get collectively all these people together, mob rule, I mean, I was beginning to really see, reading this, how it all fits together. He had that whole long chapter on Machiavelli. See, the subtlety of how he knits it together is not, you know, you have to really crank up your brain to get it. But he talked in there about how groups do not create things. You know, everybody, sometimes a group of people can improve something, but creative ideas always come from individuals. And, he, you know, there was a whole long thing about that. And he tells us how to run committees. 
and, and that brainstorming isn't really a good idea because creative ideas always come from individuals. So then he contrasts that to this fallacious idea that power to the people. And that somehow you give all this power to the people and some great thing is going to happen. But even committees can't create anything. You know, they always talk about a camel was created by a committee. You know, just sort of like it, it doesn't work. And, the, the, and if you've been in any, the difference between things where everybody gets to get a piece of it and something that's truly inspired in which people work together to create it is so different. I was at Watercourse Way, which is this um, spa down in uh, Palo Alto. It's been there for many years. I, when Jacqueline was here, <clears throat> I took her over there just to give us both a way to chill out. It's not the word because we were in hot water, but that's what we were doing. And she used to go there a lot. It's been totally renovated. You should go there just to see it. It's, it's so beautifully done. Every single square inch of that place was consciously created. Every faucet, every doorknob, every, every um, accessory, every tile. It's wonderful. It's very Japanese, very good taste. I mean, our children are really educated. I mean, they're just, it's so frustrating to me that, it's, that nobody sees it. It's so frustrating to all of us that people don't see it because they are so hypnotized. They're so, people are so hypnotized. It's, it's absolutely the emperor's new clothes. It, it, you know, no, no person who really works with children really believes what's going on, but there's this mass hypnosis going on that everybody's more homework, more rigidity, more standardized tests, you know, less of everything that makes education work for children. And then you throw in a class on self-esteem and you think that's going to work. Uh, no values, no religion, no spirituality. It's just... But I don't want to go there because it takes too long. But we can go there for a long time. But I was talking about watercourse where I just wanted to finish this thought and really knit this together. And I was just standing there and then there was this plaque, beautifully written plaque, right in the entryway area. And it says, you know, every... They remodeled within the last few years. It says every... Enterprise is always the result of many people's talents coming together and the spirit of cooperation and creativity with all, everybody adding their own. And that was really lovely. However, in any project, you will always find that there is one individual whose unique dedication, creativity, and determination is what made it all happen. And in this spirit, this place is dedicated, and then they listed a name. It was beautifully expressed, and so absolutely true, the balance point. And that's the whole thing that Swami writes about in the Machiavelli chapter is how you do that. How you, you really get creative ideas. And so the opposite of we get creative ideas by letting everybody have their say. He just looks at human nature and looks how things really work. Creativity is a personal inspiration. But then, in order to bring it to fruition, depending on the project, unless you're an individual artist you have to realize how to also bring the best out of everyone. And Swami said such interesting things. Most people cannot come up with a creative idea, but many people can improve on an idea if you give them a chance. And even people who cannot articulate their thoughts very well often have great insights if you just take the time to help them articulate them. But nonetheless, he puts all this emphasis where it really belongs that leadership comes from the inspired few who have a sense of both creativity and dharma and a concern for others. It doesn't come from the dullards who have no sense of responsibility. It's so politically incorrect to look at a dull person and say, you are a dull person. You have to glorify that dull person and try to make them the leader of the nation, which is what, which is what, which is what Marx has done 
in communism, and he talks about how that system just kills the spirit of things. Okay, having said all that, last week when I was talking about communism, I was so overcome by the dullness of the subject that I couldn't think of anything interesting to say. And then I remembered a very interesting and real experience that David and I had on one of our trips back from India. We, we got off in Europe, and in Frankfurt we rented a car, and we drove for a couple of weeks through Germany and through Austria, um, which is so marvelous because every single intersection in both of those countries is marked, both directions, clearly. <laughs> in Italy, the streets change their name every few blocks, and there's no street signs at all. But in, in, in Austria and Germany, you can drive everywhere because everywhere you are, you will know exactly where you are, and your map will match your country. It's just really heavenly. So anyway, we did that. But we got all the way to somewhere. We drove up to... Uh, uh, Connor's route where um, Trace Nolan lived and we had a great trip and somewhere in there David decided that it, he wanted to go to Budapest so we I think we went from Vienna we left the car in Vienna and we went by train to Budapest David likes to go anywhere he's never been so you know I was indifferent to it and, and we had bought somewhere in uh, Germany we had bought a German umbrella you know sturdy hard working large <laughs> waterproof, fabulous umbrella because it was in the middle of November, it was raining a lot and we used our German umbrella but for some reason we had a consciousness lapse so when we left Vienna to go to uh, Hungary to Budapest, is that the country? Yeah, we left our German umbrella in Germany, in Austria we got to Budapest and it was pouring rain and we were getting soaked so we needed to buy an umbrella so we started looking for an umbrella and this was, I guess it was the country was still communist Yes, it was still communist, of course. And uh, I don't know, I guess we could go in and out, though. It wasn't hard. But the communist system was still in place. We tried to find an umbrella. We went from shop to shop to shop. It was near Christmas time. All they sold, they all sold the same umbrella. They sold this small communist umbrella. That's what we called it. <laughs> it was a very small, extremely crummy umbrella. And it, everywhere we went, from shop to shop, they sold the same crummy umbrella. And we were soaked... So we had to buy, we only bought one. I couldn't persuade David to buy two. So we were very wet the whole time. And we were huddled under this short-handled, tiny, hardly waterproof, communist umbrella the whole time, <laughs> which we finally gave to a child when we came home because it was so terrible. There was just no sign of, of a real umbrella. Because, but more than that, just the search for that taught me everything that Swami had said this whole time. Because it was Christmas, and there was absolutely no creativity anywhere. You know, we were only in this one city, which, is, which was a beautiful city, because it hasn't always been communist. You know, there was beautiful architecture, even in the rain and everything. It was a wonderful place. But everybody was just doing nothing, because there was no capacity to do nothing. I meant, there was no sign of anything, any expression and, you know, we'd ask for the umbrellas, they'd say, they're the umbrellas. We'd say, this is a really lousy umbrella. Do you have any other umbrellas? This is the umbrella. And there would be, like, like in almost every place, there would be this, like, really crummy little tree with about two pieces of tinsel and one bulb. But it wasn't merely that it was ugly. It was so clear that people had given up trying. And it was just the epitome of everything that he writes here. So we don't even know about this. This is when I get in discussions with people, and this has happened last night, when people start denigrating this country 
because there are people in this country whose ideals have slipped from our ideals, I say, you have no idea what's going on here. When we bring even people from Italy, and Italy is you know, so artistic and creative, and they have so much better taste than we have in America. One of the places that our Italian friends enjoyed the most at the beginning was Long's Drugstore. And they would walk up and down the aisles picking up these astonishing items that somebody had created and, and was selling. And then they would laugh and talk about them and put them back. And our friends from India, you know, just... Long's Drugstore, we realized, was like a really good place to take people just because it's just so... such an amazing example of the freedom of this country. And it's not merely that people can do it, but it occurs to them to do it. Because the whole context is that the individual matters and that the governor of Washington, his father was an indentured servant one mile from where he's talking tonight in answer to the President of the United States because nobody said he couldn't do it. And the whole system was designed to bring him up. And it still is, even though it's messed up, and even though exactly the system, what Swami is describing here, but we ourselves have to recognize, because it's not really that it's going to be voted in and out of existence, it's going to be consciousness in and out of existence. You know, it's, it's the waves of consciousness and understanding that really matter. We do have power. We will have power because it'll just become different. You know, Kellogg's now puts out a whole grain cereal with a huge magnified picture of the whole grain in the cereal. And, and in 1965, when we started making whole grain cereal because you couldn't buy it, you know, making our own granola because you couldn't buy it, and one of my friends worked as an accountant for General Mills, and he told us that you could get more nutrition from the box than you could from the cereal. <laughs> he said, eat the box, you'll be better off, right? We were just considered absolute lunatics. But look what's happening now. You know, it's just a complete revolution. And nobody declared it. The government didn't declare it. There was no you know, bureau that declared. But the people's consciousness changed. And, and one or two people with real power can change a whole nation. That's how it happens. It's not the masses that change it. Because the, Swami writes very, very bluntly, the masses of people do not have ideas. But good ideas well expressed can inspire good people to do something different. And so he he brings it down in this particular chapter all the way down to a community. Don't try to change the world with some big system that's going to change the whole world. That's the same delusion. That it's bigger is better and everybody has to do it our way. He said, you do it differently. And then he says, and doesn't it make sense to make as one of your cardinal values to band together with people who will help you? Like, why not, for heaven's sakes? And then he just traces it through. You're going to be associated with people anyway. Why not associate with people who will help you? And then he sort of makes a poignant cry. Life is so fragmented. That's why people are just so mixed up. I read a very, very interesting book. Oh, my God, it's late. Let me give you just one more minute. It was called The Myth of Male Power. And it was actually not against men. It was a pro-men book. It's a very interesting book, actually. And it's, it's the myth that, that men have it so much better than women. And it was actually written by a man who used to be part of the National Organization for Women. And he talks, he talks about many, many interesting things. But he described what's happened to men lately. And one of the things he talks about is, is how 
you know, a man used to, has always traditionally been responsible for the welfare of his family, and he worked hard to do it. But he worked hard, generally speaking, in the company and the context of his family. He was a farmer. He went home for lunch. He was a merchant. His children were playing in the store with him. His wife might have lived in the apartment behind. In other words, in order to take care of his family, he still was able to enjoy the benefits of his family. But increasingly, he he leaves. He goes away. He comes back 14 hours later. He has nothing of the experience of what he's working for. And then it talks about how, he says, in order for a man to do that, he has to, to essentially kill within him so many aspects of his nature, else he can't do it. And now he's being attacked for having done that. <laughs> now, I don't, you know, I'm just, you understand? You're not sensitive, you're not this, you're not that. But the circumstances of life have put people in such an impossible bind. And small communities are the answer to so much of it. That's what Swami just likes to keep saying over and over again. The fragmentation, the separation, the, the extreme necessity to live this. And why? Because we've just escalated our material needs. We've escalated our society. So if it all gets blown to smithereens, will that be a, a tragedy? You know, if we're just, if we, I look around and I think, boy, when we can't live this way anymore, when somebody finally pulls the plug on it, we're going to say, what could we have been thinking? You know, just what could we have been thinking? When, when we're just back down, reduced to necessities, and live like human beings instead of like machines, we'll be so happy again. You know, as happy as human beings can be, but at least we won't be on this mad treadmill. Isn't that a wonderful word? Life, for most people, is a treadmill. But it doesn't have to be. Just create wealth out of things that are really valuable and have the courage and the independence and the creativity to do that. Okay, enough said. (laughs) I think I've rescued this class. (laughs) I can't stand it either when it's really...